they were trying to keep the town alive long enough to get all us kids growed up through school and hopefully the hell out of there so they could pack up and leave because everybody understood that Uniontown was a dead town. Welcome back to Dark House. I'm Alyssa Fiorentino. And I'm Hadley Mendelson. We're your hosts. If you're new here in each episode, we dig into the backstory of a house that is allegedly haunted or notorious for some reason or another. We'll talk about who lived there, who died there, and all the events that led to its eventual infamy. Today, we'll be talking about a historic home in Uniontown, Alabama. Its official name is the Hardy Coleman House, but it's actually better known, at least online, as the Lucy Murder House or the Allen Lucy Murder House. And that's because in January of 1994, nine years after 13-year-old Allen Lucy disappeared, his remains were found buried underneath the front porch. Mm. Allen lived at the house with his adoptive parents, Philip and Margaret Lucy. After Allen went missing in May of 1985, Jason Lucy, Philip and Margaret's 12-year-old son, told kids at school that his father killed Allen. Today, we're going to find out what really happened to Alan Lucy, including why no one believed his brother's story and why it took so long to bring his murderer to justice. Okay, so lots to unpack here, it sounds like. You have no idea. This is actually my most obscure house of the season. Aside from a few blog posts and YouTube videos, it hasn't really been covered. Hmm. That's likely because Uniontown is a very, very small rural community in West Central Alabama. When Allen's remains were discovered in 1994, Uniontown's population was just over 1,700 people. So, small. And although the news completely shocked the community, it never really made national headlines. Hmm. Most of my research involved digging through local papers that have been archived on newspapers.com, but I was also able to speak to somebody who knew Allen and Jason Lucy. Oh, cool. His name is David Barton House. He grew up on a farm just outside of town, and his relatives lived in two historic houses a block away from the Lucy's house. I'm going to play you parts of my conversation with David throughout the episode. And as you'll hear, he provided some really vital insight into what life was like in Uniontown in the 80s and 90s and why neighbors were suspicious of the Lucy family long before Alan's disappearance. Huh. Okay. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to one of our listeners, Felicia Bustle, who reached out to us on Instagram and suggested that we look into this house. Thanks, Felicia. And thank you to everyone who sends us suggestions. Please keep them coming. Yes. You all have the best ideas. As a reminder, you can follow Dark House on Instagram at Dark House Podcast. We read all of your messages and comments and we love hearing from you. That's true. I also wanted to give everyone listening a heads up that today's story involves some heavy topics, including domestic violence, abuse and neglect. So please listen with caution. Okay, and now without further ado, how about we meet today's house? Let's do it. So like I said, the Hardy Coleman House is a historic home. There are over 100 buildings in Uniontown's historic district, and most of them are single-family homes that were built between the mid-1800s and the mid-1900s. The houses vary in size and architectural style, but the Hardy Coleman House on North Street is easily one of the grandest. Mm. It's a two-story white clapboard house with a hip roof and a five-bay facade, which is a fancy way of saying that the front of the house is broken up by five windows, which are either French doors or hung sash windows, but none of them have shutters. The front doors are these beautiful French doors with side lights on either side and then a fan light window above. But the standout feature of the front of the house is the gable roof portico. It's two stories high and held up by four ionic columns, which are typical of the neoclassical revival style that the house was built in. But 
they also make the house seem more imposing. And the portico covers the second floor balcony, which has a decorative railing that gives the house a touch of Southern Gothic style too. Mm, My favorite. And one more thing about the exterior of the house. The foundation is made of red brick. Normally I wouldn't mention such a minor detail, but it comes Mm. up again later in our story. So just keep that in mind. All right. So the house is named after the first two families to own it. The Hardys, who originally built the house in 1918, and the Coleman's, who bought it from the Hardys in 1924. Let me tell you a little bit about each of them. Okay. John Hardy was a farmer. He lived and worked at his grandfather's plantation outside of town until sometime around 1914, which was when he married Mary Knight. In March of 1918, John and Mary bought a lot on North Street, which is where they built the home I just described to you. Okay. I wasn't able to figure out exactly when the house was constructed or who might have been the builder or architect, But depending on when construction started and how long it took for the house to be completed, it's possible that John Hardy only lived there for a few months. He died from an unidentified illness on September 12, 1919, at the age of 48. His widow, Mary, was remarried the following year, and she, her son with John, and her second husband lived at the house for another four years until they sold it to Robert Coleman in November of 1924 for $5,500. Hmm. Robert Coleman was the manager of a general store in Uniontown, and his family was pretty prominent within the community. They owned a lot of property in town. His grandmother actually donated the corner plot at the end of North Street, where the United Methodist Church was built in 1858. And Hmm. just a few blocks away, Robert's brother built Conida Manor, which is another historic home. Okay. It's just as grand and stately as the Hardy Coleman house, maybe even more so, honestly. Hmm. Also... Another one of Robert's brothers was mayor for a few years. So you can imagine the Coleman family's social standing. Big fish, it sounds like. Definitely. So Robert lived at the house with his wife, Annie, and his son, Robert Jr., who was nine or ten when they bought it. We know the Coleman's either renovated the house or at least redecorated because a mention in the society pages from October of 1925 said, Mrs. Coleman has recently completed a beautiful new home. They hosted a housewarming party that month and went on to host guests for several other occasions over the years, including the weddings of a few relatives. Then Robert Coleman died in the house on Christmas Day in 1939. Mm. He was 67 at the time, and his obituary said he died after a period of failing health. Mm. Robert Jr. eventually got married and built his own house about a block away. But Annie Coleman lived in the house for the remainder of her life. She was 91 years old when she died at a hospital on January 16, 1981. Okay, so she outlived them by a lot. By that point, Uniontown had fallen into economic decline, and many of the historic homes, the Hardy Coleman House included, were in various states of disrepair. David had a pretty vivid memory about one of the bigger homes in the area that I thought you should hear. Uh, I was really close with the Long family growing up. And uh, the houses they had there, like Westwood, Pitts Folly, I mean multiple houses that had come down through that family. And I mean, just, just falling apart. I remember going out to Pitts Folly and there was a tree growing through the wall of one room. And, you know, nobody had any money to keep the houses up anymore. Hmm. So we're not just talking about needing a fresh coat of paint. Most of these houses were extremely run down. And the reason for the economic downturn was deeply rooted in agriculture. Uniontown is in Perry County, which is one of about 24 counties that make up Alabama's Black Belt region. The Black Belt was named after the fertile black soil that was originally found in the area. It drew a huge wave of white settlers to Alabama in the 1820s after they overcultivated the soil in the east. 
But the soil in this part of Alabama was so fertile because there was limestone in the area left over from an ancient ocean bed. Mm. And limestone neutralizes the acidity in soil, which basically makes it way better for your plants to grow. So gardeners will sometimes add lime, which is pulverized limestone, to their Mm. soil. But in the Black Belt, the soil was already naturally limed. You kind of lost me at ancient ocean because I started thinking about the Titanic. This is all very over my head, but it's interesting. I'm glad I'm learning something. Something else I thought was interesting, the reason why cotton became the cash crop here is because it could stand up to Alabama's hot climate and unlike produce, it wouldn't spoil on the way to the ports in Mobile, which were about 150 miles south of Uniontown and even further from the more eastern counties of the Black Belt. I've wondered that. That makes sense. So that name, the Black Belt, refers to the soil, but it has a double meaning because it also refers to the population, Mm. which due to slavery was 50 to 75 percent black throughout the region by 1850. Okay. And through the exploitation of enslaved people forced to work on plantations, Alabama became one of the country's leading producers of cotton at that time. So as a result, towns were built all across the Black Belt for the sole purpose of processing, selling, and transporting cotton, including Uniontown, which was officially incorporated in 1836. Hmm. Now, originally, Uniontown was a very small central commerce hub for the surrounding family farms and larger plantations, with only a few shops and small houses. It was customary for wealthy planters to live on their plantations, but by the 1840s, a lot of them started building second homes in town for when they would be there doing business. And so in time, the town became more and more residential. Okay. At that point prior to the Civil War and abolition, the Black Belt was one of the wealthiest regions in the entire country. And to give you a sense of just how much of Uniontown's industry revolved around cotton production, here are a few of the commercial buildings that were listed on the Sanborn Fire Insurance map from 1899. There were the Ella White Cotton Mills, the Cotton Rope and Grist Mill, the Uniontown Warehouse Company and Gin, the Robertson Cotton Warehouse, the ER Glass Cotton Gin, and the Mm. Uniontown Cotton Oil Company and Cotton Seed Oil Mill, just to name a few. Wow, okay, so you know your stuff. And that was just like a random map that you found? That's not like a historically important map or? Oh no, the Sanborn maps are actually a really great historical resource. Mm. There are maps of towns and cities across the U.S. in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and they were originally produced so that fire insurance companies could accurately assess fire hazards on specific properties. So the maps show both commercial and residential buildings, and they were created every few years. So for our purposes, they can be really helpful in trying to figure out what was on the land before the house was built. Wait, yeah, that's so cool. And you can find one for any town in the country. You should be able to, although I've noticed that certain years aren't available online. But if you're interested in learning more about your own town, it's definitely worth a Google search. Yeah, can we like stop recording so I can go do it now? I'm so (laughs) curious. But back to Uniontown. All of those cotton-related businesses I just mentioned were closed by the 1930s. Hmm. There were a number of things that led to this, but the major catalyst was the Civil War. Slavery was abolished in 1865 when the war ended and the 13th Amendment was ratified. In its place, a new system of sharecropping and tenant farming was established, whereby poor white farmers and formerly enslaved Black people rented land from a landowner and paid for it with a portion of the crops that they grew there. This system gave power and control to the landowners and left the sharecroppers and tenant farmers, who made up a majority of the town's population, in a cycle of debt that was almost impossible to escape. Right. Okay, so it sounds like indentured servitude, at least to a degree, not to mention, too, other new systems that were put in place to just maintain inequities from before the war. But keep going. The years of cotton production had environmental consequences, too. Here's David again. After the end of the Civil War, eventually the soil was so depleted and played out and people tried other things, you know, to stay afloat. 
most people that were involved in agriculture down there were like my family. They were cattlemen. I grew up on a dairy farm. Man, people either uh, ran dairy farms, kept herds of beef cattle, and if you didn't do that, you were in soybean farming. And when the soybean market collapsed at the end of the late 70s, I mean, a lot of people went bankrupt and lost everything or what little they had. There were a few people who, you know, took a chance and dug a few ponds and tried to get in on this new fangled thing called catfish farming. Mm -hmm. And they actually became successful because, you know, it's like they knew when to buy that stock at the right time. But the problem was, is they just kept getting bigger and bigger and buying out and buying out more people and then building their own processing plants. And the smaller farms were dwindling away. And anybody who tried to get in on it, you know, at that point, it was too late. They'd missed the boat. And this ultimately caused a lot of residents to leave Uniontown. I want you to hear what David said about that. When there was still life in that town, when we were kids and my parents' generation, they were trying to keep the town alive long enough to get all us kids grown up through school and hopefully the hell out of there so they could pack up and leave. Because everybody understood that Uniontown was a dead town. Yikes, that's scary. This is part of the reason why it seemed so strange to everyone in Uniontown when the Lucys, a family from Florida, bought the Hardy Coleman house in 1981. Yeah, I wonder why they decided to move there. Well, according to David, this was something their neighbors wondered about, too. A lot. You know, I don't know what the Lucys, what uh, Philip Lucy and his wife, I don't know what their story was or why they decided to move to Uniontown. I'll tell you a theory that used to be fielded where they were in the witness protection program. Another one was that their real name was Lucci and uh, they had mafia ties and they were up in Uniontown hiding out because nobody seemed to know what they did for money. And for them to just buy a home of that size, even at a reduced price to come up there. I mean, if he had any aspirations of, oh, we're going to buy this mansion fix it up, and then we're going to flip it for a big price. Well, good luck, because Mm -hmm. people did not move to Uniontown. Unfortunately, I didn't have much luck figuring out their background either, but here's what I did find. Philip Lucy married Margaret Beanie in May of 1964. If I have their birthdays correct, he would have been 31, about to turn 32 at the time, and she would have been 18 or 19. Huh. Okay, that's kind of a big age difference if they met when she was under 20. I mean, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if they'd met when she was 30 and he was in his mid-40s, but that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, you really don't know anything at 18. No. When they moved to Uniontown, Philip was semi-retired, though from what exactly, I'm not sure. We do know he was a former boxer and a veteran, but in 1950, he was dishonorably discharged from the Army after he assaulted a non-commissioned officer while stationed in Alaska. Uh Uh-oh. Things aren't looking great for him so far. No. Margaret was a homemaker. She cared for their kids full time. According to a few newspaper reports, the Lucys had nine kids. They had a biological daughter and three biological sons. Jason Lucy was the eldest of the three sons. They also had two stepsons who were older than the four kids they had together. And I'm not sure who was the biological parent of these two stepsons, Philip or Margaret. 
I assume Philip because he was older, but I didn't find any record of him being previously married or anything like that, so I can't say for sure. Mm. But I don't believe they ever lived with the Lucys in Uniontown. Okay. Finally, the Lucys had adopted three children, one of whom was Alan Lucy. His birth name was Willard Alan Marvel, and he was born on June 8th, 1971. So he was only a year or two older than Jason Lucy. In 1985, when Alan went missing, the Lucy's biological daughter was about 20 years old and away at college. Mm. And their two youngest sons hadn't been born yet. So the timeline of the other two adoptions isn't clear, but it's possible that most of the time they lived at the Hardy Coleman house, it was really just Alan and Jason. Okay. If they hadn't already been close, it sounds like the move to Uniontown could have brought them together. Here's what a typical day in Uniontown might have been like for them, according to David. Alan and Jason, you know, they would use any excuse, I guess, they could to get away from that house, get on their bicycles, ride around town, ride all over town, hang out at the Junior Foods where they had a pinball machine and a Pac-Man, where you could just walk in and read comic books all day long on the newsstand and the clerks wouldn't run you off or, you know, say go away. I mean, everybody, everybody kind of understood there really wasn't anything for kids in that town to do. David and his friends were in high school at the time of Alan's disappearance, but the older kids were still familiar with the younger kids, including Alan and Jason. I mean, it, it's it's hard to explain Uniontown because you really didn't have a friend group where everybody was the same age because mm-hmm. there were so few kids. So it was nothing to have a group of friends that were spread out over, you know, almost a decade. Right in age difference, because it's not like you had a bunch of guys that were your own age to hang out with. And of course, people with different interests, like, you know, the sports guys kind of hung out with each other, people that went to different schools, but we all knew each other. Right. I mean, I can remember, you know, they'd be riding bicycles with a couple other, you know, kids we knew. So they probably spent more time riding bikes together and getting into adventures, uh, Okay. Us being a little bit older, you know, we were like most teenage kids of our age in high school, you know, we're into drinking and girls and whatnot. And they were still, you know, a little bit too young for that. Right. When the Lucys reported Alan missing on May 21st, 1985, he was just a few weeks shy of turning 14. But in his school picture that year, which was circulated throughout the state and the majority of the Southeast, He actually looks much younger. I would have guessed maybe he was 11. He just looks so boyish and innocent. He's a bit scrawny with dark brown hair and a long bowl cut. He had big brown eyes. And you can see in the photo that there was a bit of puffiness beneath them when he smiled. This might be something that the other kids in town may have picked fun at. When Alan disappeared, or Frog Eyes as we knew him, you know, everybody had a nickname growing up. Everybody had a nickname. He was Frog Eyes and his brother was Swinging. Don't even ask how they got those nicknames. I was going to ask. Uh, Can I just confirm, is Swingy, that's his brother, Jason? Yeah, that was Jason. The okay. Lucy's, the Lucy, listen to me. <laughs> the Lucy's natural, you know, son. Because okay. Frog Eyes, Alan, was a foster child. Alan entered the foster care system when he was seven years old. His biological parents were Ardell and Aragon and Willard Marvel, a couple from Indiana. 
They got married either at the end of 1951 or the beginning of 1952. And at some point, they moved to Florida, where they filed for divorce in the spring of 1975, a few months before Ellen turned four. Oh, they were married a long time before they had him. 20 years, more than 20 years. Okay. Ardella married her second husband, Robert Leisure, three years later. According to her second husband, Ardella was working two jobs at the time, and so Alan was often left in the care of his 19-year-old brother. But Willard, her ex-husband and Alan's biological father, was always trying to cause trouble for her, so he reported her to Florida's equivalent of Child Protective Services. Oh, that's so messed up. I feel like that's so vindictive and just unconscionable. The last time Ardella saw Alan was on June 8, 1978, which was his seventh birthday after which he was Mm. removed from her care and eventually placed in foster care with Philip and Margaret Lucy. (laughs) According to Robert Leisure, her second husband, they thought they would be able to get Alan back pretty quickly, but they had a bad lawyer who told them it would cost more money than they could afford to fight the judge presiding over the case, Mm. who supposedly had a bad reputation for making, quote, controversial decisions regarding child custody. Damn. Robert also said that after being removed from the care of his family, Alan had problems and received psychiatric treatment. Hmm. I mean, who wouldn't have problems, though, being separated like that? Right. I wonder what kind of treatment he got. I hope it was comprehensive. Mm. Okay, just one last comment, too. I feel like that just must have been absolute torture for his mom. Oh, I can't imagine. I just think the system is so deeply flawed. Flawed is putting it lightly, I think, but I'm a huge believer in reunification when possible with the foster care system. Obviously, only when it really is in their best interest and is safer for them. But I just feel like, especially in these kinds of cases where CPS is called in some kind of retaliation, whether spousal or somebody else. Yeah, it's especially hard to stomach. It's possible there's more to the story. This is only Ardella and Robert's side. Right. But regardless, I'm sure this was extremely traumatic for everyone involved, especially Alan. But it wasn't something he talked about, at least not with his friends Mm. in Uniontown. Here's David again. It's not something you'd really discuss or would would really get brought up. And you got to think that time in the 80s, that wasn't something that would really win you cool points. Right. And he's already frog eyes, so. Yeah, he's already frog eyes. Mm. According to David, they only found out about Alan being adopted after he disappeared. And that's because Philip Lucy had started telling people that Alan had run away to Florida to find his biological parents. Aha. Aha. Alvin Ben, a reporter for the Montgomery Advertiser who covered the Alan Lucy case from 1994 to 2001, wrote a chapter about it in his book called Reporter, Covering Civil Rights and Wrongs in Dixie. He said that most people didn't believe Philip's claim that Alan had run off because he was so young and, quote, lacked the street smarts to fend for himself. But that's essentially the opposite of what I heard from David. It was not hard for anybody to accept the fact that he just ran away from home and was trying to get back to Florida and that eventually he'd turn up or, you know, he'd make it down there. And for somebody that age, I mean, or younger to scrape together a little bit of money and just, you know, buy a bus ticket. There was no tracking system or anything like we have today. I mean, I used to walk home from the county school across three pastures, a major interstate, and then then a few more cow fields because I would leave grade school at recess because I was through with school. I was tired of it. I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done for the day. And at recess, I would just start walking because I knew how to get home. 
I didn't have to spend the day there and wait on the bus. There were no line of SUVs filled with soccer moms coming to pick kids up. We rode bicycles for miles and miles. I mean, we we jumped trains and would ride trains all the way to Demopolis like hobos and jump <laughs> off because they had video games. I mean, we were wild. So let's just say Alan scraped together, you know, $20, which would have been a uh, you know, substantial fund back then, and bought a bus ticket headed to Florida or, you know, got as far as he could and decided to hitchhike the rest of the way. I mean, that was not unthinkable. You know, that was not unthinkable. And police have their own reasons for believing that Allen had run away. Sometime in 1984, while he was walking to school, Allen ran into Uniontown Police Chief Robert Hester and showed him welts on his shoulders and thighs. Mm. He told Chief Hester that he was tired of being punished all the time and that he was going to run away. But apparently Hester talked him out of it and convinced him to go back to the Lucy's house. I have some words for Hester. That's horrible. When Chief Hester confronted Philip about the welts on Alan's body, Philip said that his wife, quote, took a switch to Alan for fighting with Jason. Mm. From our perspective today, it's easy to wonder why the Uniontown Police Department hadn't done more back when they first learned that Alan was being abused. Yes. But something we have to keep in mind is that Uniontown was a poor rural community with very limited resources. Here's David again. You know, me and my friends would always talk later in college about how our part of the world was at least a decade, if not more, behind, you know, the rest of the world. You know, it was it was almost like Mayberry. I mean, Uniontown only had two police officers and they worked the day shift. Wow. And if anything happened, they got called out at night. I mean, down the road closer to where our farm was, the little community of Fonsdale, didn't even have police, had a volunteer fire department. Uh, Uniontown had a volunteer fire department. You know, it's just a small rural Southern community. For anybody who isn't familiar with the reference, Mayberry is the fictional North Carolina town from the Andy Griffith show, which aired in the 60s. The two main characters are the town sheriff and his deputy, who make up the entire police force. So the reference is pretty spot on. Okay. Sounds like it. Besides the runaway theory, there were really only two other potential leads. A week after Alan disappeared, Philip Lucy went to the Alabama State Trooper headquarters with information about his possible abduction. A young boy from Uniontown had reported seeing Alan with a tall, heavyset white man outside of the Piggly Wiggly store on May 22nd. The boy said the man had a black beard and a mustache, and that he had Alan by the neck and was marching him down the street. The boy also said he saw them stop and talk to another man who was in a small blue car, although he couldn't get a clear look at the guy behind the wheel. After a few minutes, the car drove off, and then the man walked Alan across the street and away. Great. The police didn't give much merit to the boy's story, though. They thought he was probably lying to get the reward money that the Lucys were offering in exchange for information about Alan's whereabouts. I was curious if the little boy had told this story to anyone besides the police, so I asked David if he remembered hearing anything about it. I never heard that story. I never heard the story of him being snatched off the street. And remember, I was enrolled at Marion Institute at that time, so that's boarding school. I graduated from Marion Institute in 85. I was there from 81 to 85. Uh, boarding school. Uh, I might have been home occasional weekends and, you know, breaks for holidays and in the summer. You know, a lot of the information I had, I got secondhand from all my friends who lived there full time 
and either went to public school or went to one of the uh, private academies just down the road in Greensboro. Okay. I never did hear that story. I just... I just heard that, that uh, you know, frog eyes disappeared. There was a rumor that circulated that his brother, Jason, that Jason did say something about, about my dad killed, my dad killed Alan. Right. And people just didn't take it serious. Huh. Interesting that everyone just wrote that off. The police didn't write him off quite as quickly, but they never conducted a search mm. of the property because... The district attorney's office couldn't get a warrant and any evidence that they found without a warrant would be inadmissible in court. Right. In September of 1985, about four months after Alan was reported missing, Margaret Lucy told the Selma Times Journal that his disappearance had absolutely devastated Jason. And she sounded pretty devastated herself. She told the paper that she was trying to find a support group for parents of missing children, but that there's no way you can really cope with it and that Every time the phone rings, you run for it and hold your breath. You wonder if this is some word on your son and what kind of word it will be. Mm. She said she'd also become paranoid about her other children's safety and stopped letting them walk to school. Margaret did another interview with the Selma Times Journal in June of 1986, one year after Alan's disappearance. Even though there had been no updates in this case, she told the paper that they weren't giving up and that she believed he was still alive. She said, it may be silly or wishful thinking, but I believe that if he were dead, I would know it. Mm. Okay. Well, was there any reason to think that Margaret was being anything other than sincere? Like, how credible was she? I'm only asking because of Jason's accusations and then Alan's physical signs of abuse from earlier. Yeah, no, I'm with you. When I first started researching this story, I had assumed she was equally involved in what happened to Alan. Mm. But the further along I got, the more unsure I became. Yeah. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But for now, I want to play you another clip from my conversation with David. Here's what he said when I asked him what Margaret was like. Okay. I never met her. Now, Mr. Lucy, Philip, you know, never really spoke to him, you know, saw him. He was he was he was not the kind of guy that would walk out on the front porch and smile and wave at kids when we were going down the street. Right. He was the kind of guy that if you saw him, you know, he looked like he was in a bad mood and, you know, would just kind of harumph like get off my lawn and go back into the house that felt pretty in line with the impression i'd gotten of philip thus far but now it's about to get a whole lot worse Mm, i guess i'm not too surprised that he's about to get worse but i'll buckle up in january of 1989 the lucy's bought a new home insurance policy then one month later a fire broke out and damaged the front portion of the house When the fire marshal issued a report on the incident a year later, the fire was declared suspicious. Yeah. According to the report, firefighters found papers, matches, and flammable liquids stuffed into the exterior walls where the fire had started. Okay, so they're not the savviest criminals. Evidently not. The report also said that the Lucys were seen standing outside of the house, making no effort to put the fire out. Oy vey. And after the insurance company refused to pay the Lucys 37000 for repairs, they sued the company for an additional 50000 in punitive damages. But the insurance company fought back, and as it turns out, this wasn't the Lucys' first issue with a house fire. In 1976, they got 15000 from an insurance company after a fire destroyed their house in Baskin, Louisiana, and they'd also submitted a claim after a fire broke out at their home in St. Louis back in 1965. Okay, so the frequent moves around the country are starting to make more sense now. Yeah, a bit. The court sided with the insurance company, but the Lucys tried to appeal their case, which dragged the legal proceedings out about four years until June of 1993 
when the state Supreme Court denied their appeal. It was probably around this time that they decided to put the house up for sale. Do you think they ever fixed the damages themselves or were they just living in char? Well, it had been four years since the fire, so I would hope they made any essential repairs. But generally speaking, the house was in bad shape when they listed it that fall. According to one report, they had advertised the house as an antebellum mansion. This threw me for a bit of a loop because by definition, the word antebellum means before the war, but it's most commonly used to refer to the time period before the Civil War. Yeah. Now, the house was built in 1918, more than 50 years after the Civil War had ended. So this is how I came to understand Mm. that in the South, antebellum is often used as kind of an umbrella term to describe the popular architectural styles of that time period, which is accurate Mm -hmm. when describing homes built before the Civil War. But in this context, while it's being used to describe a house that was not built before the war, the term implies nostalgia for that era. Yeah, right. Which is harmful, obviously, because it erases or attempts to romanticize, I feel like, the atrocities of the antebellum period, wherein African origin people were trafficked and sold through the transatlantic slave trade for chattel slavery. It also reminds me of kind of the way that these frats, especially in the South, will have a theme that's antebellum or they did in the early 2000s and then it comes out. I think that happened to someone who was a contestant on The Bachelor recently. Yes. The most accurate way to describe the Hardy Coleman Lucy house would be neoclassical revival or even Greek revival. And actually, the next owner had said it was the home's Greek revival architecture that drew him to it. His name is Kelly Kirby, and he bought the house from the Lucy's in October of 1993 for $55,000. Kirby was from Washington State, but he reportedly owned and renovated historic homes across the country, although I wasn't able to verify that. Mm. Either way, he definitely owned this house, which by the end of 1993 was said to be badly deteriorating. So he brought three friends with him from Washington to help renovate it. Their names were Ron Adams, Roy Bowman, and Robert Schlieffer. Schlieffer? Schlieffer, right? Tom Twister. Kirby and Bowman actually lived at the house with the Lucys for a few weeks in October of 1993 while the sale was being finalized. Jason, who was 21 now, still lived with his parents, as did his two younger brothers, who were only eight and six. The Lucys also had an adoptive son named Donald, who was living with them at the time. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to confirm when he was adopted by the Lucys. The only information we really have is that he was 18 years old and mentally impaired. Huh. Okay, but... David had never mentioned him before, right? No. So the third brother wasn't mentioned. Okay. In mid-October, the Lucys moved to a town in Wilcox County, about 40 minutes south of Uniontown. After that, Kirby and his friends got to work fixing up the house. I wonder what his interest was in the house. I get that he was renovating old houses and that was kind of his thing. But from what we heard about the state of the town overall, did it seem like the economy was going to have an upward swing or something? Was he super into catfishing? I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah, I was confused, too. I spoke about it with David. Here's his take. And I mean, if he was looking to get, you know, property like that, I mean, I remember the old McKee house out toward Fonsdale. I mean, there were two very stately manors, you know, out there, 1800s. And one of them that was called White Gates, White Gates uh, was being used to store hay bales. Most of the uh, floorboards, which I'm sure were mahogany or... uh, you know, water cypress had been pulled up in most of the rooms to be used to make fences or something else. The roof was caving in, but down the road, the McKee house was in a little bit better condition. And I remember in the eighties, somebody bought that house, but it was far enough out in the country and sat on enough remaining land that if you were wealthy enough and wanted like 
a getaway out in the country and could afford to restore a home like that, you know, it would have been perfect for it. But buying something like, you know, the Lucy House or even Conida Manor or whatever, smack dab in the middle of Uniontown, I mean, that's a losing proposition. He went on to say that it would actually make more sense to tear the house down and build an exact replica. Here's another secret. And I mean, I learned this secret from the old timers. When those houses were originally built, they weren't meant to last this long. People expected something to happen. You know, my God, the drapes are on fire. (laughs) You know, they expected that to happen. They expected the house to burn down and just build another one. That's even grander and more stately. I guess as an outsider, the new owner might not know about all this. Although he supposedly was collecting historic homes across the country, right? So you'd think that he would have done some research before investing. Right. Well, something else that's curious. At some point, Kirby and his friends had heard rumors that there was either treasure or a body buried under the house. Uh They didn't say when they heard this or who they heard it from. So at first, I just assumed they'd heard about it once they got to town, after Kirby already bought the house. Oh. But now I'm wondering if maybe they'd heard those rumors beforehand and that could have been why he actually bought it. Like maybe they were on some epic treasure hunt. Hmm. But I hadn't come across anything about a buried treasure when I was looking into the history of the house. So I wanted to ask David if he'd ever heard that rumor. Good Lord. Alyssa, (laughs) that is every antebellum house in every town, in every county of every state of the Deep South. Every old Civil War mansion had a fortune hidden or buried somewhere because they hid all the gold and buried all the treasure because the Yankees were coming. And nobody could remember where it was or nobody could find it. Of course, as soon as he said this, it clicked in my brain that that's essentially the plot of Outer Banks season two. Mm, Not that I've watched, but that legend does make sense given the (laughs) historical context, except that this house was not built before the war, which I'm sure Kirby knew from property records. At least I hope he did. I mean, maybe, in which case my theory that he bought the house because of the treasure is probably a stretch. But his friend Ron Adams told reporter Alvin Ben that on the morning of January 3rd, 1994, when he came across something buried under the front porch, he immediately thought, I'm going to be rich. A few of the men had been working on some plumbing repairs in a four-foot crawl space beneath the house. Not the crawl space? I know. And since he was six feet tall, Adams had to lie flat on his stomach and army crawl to get around down there, which is my literal nightmare. Yeah. The plastic rake he was using got caught on an exposed root, and when he went to untangle it, he noticed a patch of loose soil in an area where the rest of the dirt had been packed solid. Having heard those rumors about something being buried under the house, he started digging. First, he found a layer of red bricks, then directly beneath them, two plastic bags. Inside the bags were human bones wrapped in a child's bed sheet mm. that had Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck cartoons on the border. Not good. Not good. Adam said that the body had been positioned on its back with its head closest to the front of the house. Chief Hester and his deputy were called to the scene, as well as additional officers from the county sheriff's department and the Alabama Bureau of Investigations. By that afternoon, a crowd of reporters and curious onlookers were surrounding the house. One unidentified female neighbor told the Selma Times Journal, that house scares me. Those people were crazy. Uh Uh-oh. Meanwhile, the remains were removed and sent to the Department of Forensic Sciences in Tuscaloosa for identification. 
Dental records confirmed that the bones uncovered under the porch were, in fact, the remains of Alan Lucy. The identity was made based on specific fillings and a missing tooth. The medical examiner said it would be difficult to determine Alan's cause of death because all that was left were his skeletal remains. Mm. He confirmed that the bones would be x-rayed to look for any projectiles or foreign objects, and they'd also be checked for signs of blood trauma, along with the clothes that were found in the bags. But he explained that if the death involved soft tissue, there would be no way to find it because all of the soft tissue had decomposed. Can I ask you a question that you may not know? What kind of causes of death would be involving soft tissue? Like a stabbing, maybe? Okay. Like maybe? So basically something that didn't like bruise or hurt a bone. Right. They did find that the skull was split under an eye socket, but it was hard to say Mm. what could have caused that. Splitting of the skull indicates blunt force trauma, right? Yeah. And did they find anything else? Like, did they check inside the house or elsewhere in the backyard? Well, so this is weird. About a week into the investigation, a self-proclaimed psychic from Marion Mm. showed up at the house claiming he'd had a dream that a five-year-old girl with long, dark hair was buried near an evergreen tree in the backyard. Of course he did. And was it true or was he a quack? Mm, Seems he was a quack. Okay. They did dig around the backyard, but all they found were some old bricks. Plus, the district attorney said there were no reports of any missing five-year-old girls in the area. Mm. Still kind of creepy. My thoughts exactly. But to answer your first question, no, they didn't seem to find anything besides what was buried in those plastic bags. And they needed more evidence before anyone could be charged with Alan's murder. So they started questioning people, including Philip and Margaret Lucy, who were already in police custody. Mm. They were arrested four days after Alan's remains were found on unrelated arson charges for the 1989 house fire. Mm. Okay, it's only technically unrelated though, right? We can assume they wanted to arrest them in connection to Alan's murder but it was easier to get them on those arson charges while they were still compiling evidence. I think we're safe to assume that. We can also presume that the authorities were mainly after Philip. The judge set his bail for the arson charges at $150,000, but Margaret's at only $50,000. The DA said the difference in the bail amounts was due to the fact that they would have separate cases and also there was a difference as to culpability. Mm. By the end of the month, the lawyer who was representing Margaret and Philip separately had made a deal with the DA on her behalf, so her bail was lowered to $15,000 and she was released. Yeah, I was going to say 50000 is still pretty high. But I hmm. wonder what it was that made police think that it was mostly Philip who was responsible for the fire, unless this was all just about Alan's murder and they thought he was mostly responsible for that. But still, what made them think Margaret was not involved? It's a good question. It's a question I had, too. In his book, reporter Alvin Ben says that after Alan's remains were discovered, Philip was always open to questions from reporters and that he seemed to enjoy the publicity, but that Margaret, quote, shied away from the television cameras and reporter notepads. She left it all up to her husband to explain the mysterious discovery under their old house. Mysterious. At first, it made me wonder if she was quiet because she was guilty and didn't want to say the wrong thing. But then I thought to myself, were you silent or were you silenced? Hmm. Maybe it wasn't her choice to avoid the reporter's questions. And maybe when she was alone with the police, she finally was able to speak up. But I'm speculating. Well, she did seem comfortable speaking up earlier when she was talking about him being missing before the discovery was made. And who was silent back then? Philip. Right. Exactly. Philip. Black Philip from The Witch. But I wish we could get the transcripts. Do you have any idea what she told the police? Any snippets in interviews and newspapers? Anything like that? No, actually, but we know a bit about what authorities learned from Roy Bowman, one of the men renovating the house who had lived there with the Lucys for a few weeks in October of 1993. Okay. Bowman told police that Philip had a rocking chair on the corner of the porch right above the spot where Alan's remains were eventually found and that he, quote, 
kept saying that he felt the presence of ghosts where he liked to rock mm. away. Oh, God. Ew, it's almost sounding like he was on guard or something. Like he was right over the spot. Like he was hinting Ugh, at that's it. That's really creepy. Creepy. Uh-huh. But why did he like to rock away where the ghost was? Like, was he proud of himself for getting away with it? I don't know. Ew, 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 ew. It's kind of like when killers will revisit the scene of their crimes exactly. or something. Or keep a, a souvenir. Mm. On a more serious note, Bowman had also told police that he'd witnessed Donald, the Lucy's 18-year-old adoptive son who was mentally impaired, being abused on multiple occasions. I'm not going to go into the details of these allegations, but by the end of May 1994, Philip, Margaret, and Jason were all charged with abuse and neglect of an incapacitated adult. The suggested bail for these charges was $5,000, but the judge set Margaret and Jason's bonds at $50,000 each. Meanwhile, Philip was still being held under the arson charges. And there's still not enough probable cause for an arrest on Alan's murder? Not until Jason was arrested. Oh. He spent three days in jail before being released, and in that time, he had spoken to police and given them enough information to get an arrest warrant for his father. Oh. So on May 27, 1994, Philip Lucy was charged with the murder of Alan Lucy, and his bail was increased to $300,000. Finally. A few weeks later, Philip was charged again, this time for intimidating a witness. He apparently had one of his older sons, who lived in Missouri, call Jason and threaten him. Jason told authorities that Philip asked the older son to beat the hell out of that Judas goat. I'm so sick of Philip and his shit at this point. He's to GTFO. <laughs> Quick sidebar here. I knew that Judas was a reference to the Bible and Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, but I wasn't sure where the goat piece came from, so I eventually Googled it, and it turns out this particular insult is actually an agricultural reference. Hmm. Back in the day at meatpacking factories, they used to have to get the animals to walk up these ramps all the way to the top floor, which was known as the killing floor. Hmm. Cows and pigs could be coaxed up the ramps from behind, but sheep wouldn't go without being led. And they wouldn't follow a human, and even a dog might frighten them. So the only way to get them up the ramps was to have them follow a goat. To get the goat to lead, they would train it to expect to be rewarded with a cigarette waiting for them on the top floor. What? The goat ate the cigarettes and eventually became addicted to nicotine and thus Mm -hmm. would always be looking for that next reward. So that was a Judas goat. Technology put the goats out of a job, but for a period of time, they were incredibly valuable to the meatpacking companies. The article I read mentioned that one time in the 1950s, there was a flood in Iowa. And when a Judas goat got swept away by the floodwaters, two men risked their lives to jump in after it. Mm. Anyways, I had never heard of a Judas goat before, so I thought that was interesting. But my tangent is now over. No, it's definitely interesting. Very niche piece of history, but interesting that it ties back to agriculture. So by calling him a Judas goat, Philip is basically admitting to brainwashing his son, Jason, into doing his evil, abusive bidding for him like the ghost did for the humans just for hidden nicotine. I'll admit I thought that too at first. Now I'm thinking maybe he was accusing Jason of doing the police's bidding. Oh, interesting. Maybe. A preliminary hearing for the murder case was held on June 24th, 1994. During the hearing, Jason testified that he saw his father hit Alan on the morning he disappeared. Wherever Jason was standing, he was outside of his father's line of sight when Philip hit Alan on the left side of his face. Mm. Jason said he saw Alan fall to the floor near the refrigerator Mm. and that he didn't appear to be breathing. When Jason gasped, Philip finally noticed him standing there and ordered him to get to your fucking room now. Mm. Jason said he went to his room on the second floor and stayed there for four hours. And sometime Mm. during those four hours, he looked out the window and saw his father in the backyard holding a shovel. 
He said there was dirt on the knees of Philip's pants and on his shirt. Huh. One, interesting that this was all unfolding within the house, which I, w- I was expecting given that's where his remains were found, but just puts some more mm. creepiness to the actual house itself. And then the other thing I wanted to say was even if eyewitness testimonies are iffier, which we know they are, his story definitely aligns with the physical evidence. Right. Jason told the court that he'd had 10 years of guilt wondering why I didn't step in and take the blow for my brother and mm-hmm. that he and his mother were deathly afraid of Philip getting out of jail, saying, we know what he will do to us. He said if he ever mm-hmm. went down for Alan's murder, he'd take me with him. Ugh. The state should have never allowed them to foster again. The parents, I mean, after those suspicious circumstances and Alan's claims of abuse to Hester. Right. I don't know how we make sense of it either. But another piece of Jason's testimony that raises a bit of a red flag. He said that he hadn't told his mother what he witnessed in the kitchen until a few weeks prior to this preliminary hearing because he had been concerned for her safety as well as his own. Mm. But back in 1985, he'd told kids at school. So it's a bit hard to make out what's happening here. It's possible that he was scared that if he told Margaret, she'd confront Philip and might disappear the same way Alan did. Oh. But it's curious that he decided to take the risk of telling kids at school. Yeah, and I wonder if teachers ever heard, because I know they're mandated reporters, but I mean, they didn't care if David ran off in the middle of like kindergarten, so. Yeah. Philip Lucy was indicted by a grand jury on September 23rd, 1994. And at his arraignment a few days later, he pleaded not guilty, telling the court, I ain't done nothing. The trial date was set for the following month, but it was pushed back because there was a question of whether Philip was mentally competent to stand trial. Mm. This part is a little confusing. I think that originally the judge had ordered psychiatric evaluations of Philip as standard pretrial procedure. At that point, his lawyers were trying to keep him from being evaluated, saying they could find no reason that Philip was not competent to stand trial and assist in his own defense. Interesting. Then in February of 1995, it was reported that Philip's lawyers had accused the prosecution of withholding his medication, Hmm. which the prosecution denied. The reports didn't specify what kind of medication Philip was on, Uh. but it could have been something to do with his physical health because he had suffered a heart attack at some point after being arrested. Regardless, his lawyers told the judge that without the medication, Philip had become delusional, saying, Mr. Lucy has a chemical imbalance of the brain and he's having tendencies to see shadows on the wall. They argued that the delusions Philip was experiencing were preventing them from being able to prepare for the trial. But it seems like they were still objecting to the mental evaluations. Weird. Mm. And prior to this, I hadn't come across anything about Philip Lucy having a mental illness of any kind. So I'm not sure if his lawyers were trying to set him up for a potential insanity defense. But again, I'm just speculating. Yeah, could be. If they really didn't want him to undergo mental evaluations, it would be pretty stupid to tell the judge that he was seeing shadows on the wall. No kidding. Anyways, the hearing to determine Philip's mental competency was held in March of 1995. During the hearing, Margaret told the court that she was afraid of her husband because he feels now that I betrayed him. He said if I did betray him, he would kill me. She also came forward with her own allegations of abuse. During her testimony, she described an incident when he broke her finger in two places after she shook it at him. She also said that on another occasion, when she had gotten in between Philip and one of their kids whom he had wound up to hit, he hit her instead on the nose and in the eye. And as far as we know, she had never previously reported these incidents, but it's not uncommon for domestic abuse to go unreported. So that shouldn't discredit her testimony. Yeah, right. While she was on the stand, the prosecution asked her to identify a few of the items that were found with Alan's remains. 
she identified a pair of gym shorts as being the ones she'd laid out with Alan's other clothes the night before he disappeared, explaining that he had a chest deformity and didn't like having to get undressed for gym class. Mm. So he would wear the gym shorts under his jeans. That really breaks my heart. (sighs) Same. She also identified the bed sheet, the one with the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck cartoons on it, as one Mm. that the boys used to build makeshift tents. I was wondering about the bed sheets, actually. This was an important detail for me because I kept wondering if these were the bed sheets that Alan regularly slept on, wouldn't Margaret have noticed they were missing? But knowing they were just spare sheets makes more sense. Yeah. She told reporters that seeing the photo of the remains wrapped in the bed sheet had removed all doubts in her mind that Philip had done it. She also said she wanted to give Alan a proper burial. And because Alan had been afraid of the dark, she wanted to bury him in the sunniest spot she could find. Mm. I really want to believe her. And I understand, too, that she was victimized and how difficult and honestly impossible of a situation that would be in a town that we've talked about has so few resources, especially for issues like this. But I'm also just grappling with the fact that ultimately she was an adult whose job was to protect Alan. And I'm upset that she didn't find a way to communicate to some kind of authority figure that Philip had a history of violence and physical abuse. Mm before the adoption went through, or at least once Alan went missing, I think. I find it easier to believe that Philip was that controlling and abusive towards Margaret, and that would make it unsafe for her to do that. I mean, the alternative would be that she had no idea any of this was going on. There needs to be some kind of accountability for that, I guess. I don't know, man. I feel like there's really no right answer for such a horrible situation. Yeah. Unfortunately, we really don't know the circumstances. Yeah. Considering, again, how young Margaret was when she married Philip, that makes me feel a little bit more understanding, too, of or not understanding, but just how obvious it was that she was in a really coercive relationship from the beginning, probably. Yeah, exactly. And she did end up divorcing Philip sometime after this hearing, although I don't know exactly when, but I guess that's a good sign. I'm glad she's out of it. The court also allowed her to move out of state. So she, Jason, and her two younger sons moved to Wright City, Missouri, where Margaret's mother lived. Donald Lucy was placed in a protective environment, although it's unclear what that actually means. Mm. Regarding the abuse and neglect charges, it's unclear how they ended up playing out for Margaret and Jason. Neither of them were immediately penalized for the charges because they were providing key info against Philip in the case of Alan's murder, Mm. which ended up being dragged out for years. The results of his psychiatric evaluation suggested that he had a delusional disorder or was possibly a paranoid schizophrenic. The judge determined he was not competent to stand trial and ordered that he remain at a mental hospital in Tuscaloosa for at least six months. He was deemed incompetent to stand trial four more times until finally in October of 1997, the judge determined he'd made enough progress to testify on his own behalf. But as quickly as the trial date was set, it was pushed back again. Why? Well, first of all, Philip decided he wanted a new lawyer. Also, in the two and a half years that he was being evaluated, the district attorney who was originally prosecuting the case had passed away and the assistant Mm -hmm. district attorney retired. So all of the legal representation involved with the case was changed, which caused a major delay. Okay. Then there was also the issue of the prosecution's lack of witnesses. Unfortunately, Margaret Lucy passed away on December 3rd, 1997, after a battle with breast cancer. She was only 52. Mm. And Jason Lucy was completely MIA. Since he was the prosecution's only eyewitness, they asked for the trial to be postponed further. 
When a date was finally set, it was for May 11th, 1999, nearly 14 years after Alan disappeared. That's a long time. An incredibly long time. In all this time, Philip maintained his innocence. He told reporters, I'm not a mad dog. If anybody's going to have angel wings one day, it's going to be me. Okay, well, we know he's delusional, but I was thinking back to my research that I did for the Black Dahlia episode about how most types of murderers are ones who have poorly developed prefrontal cortexes because it's Mm. impulsive types of killings. And honestly, this sounds like he kind of fits within that category, which is interesting considering all of the evaluations and stuff and the drama surrounding that. Well, what very little we know about his background, he was a professional boxer fighter. So it's possible that at some point before he turned 25 and his prefrontal cortex was fully developed, he got hit in the head in a fight or something. Wow. Also, we know that he was a veteran and veterans have a higher likelihood of developing symptoms of PTSD, which can sometimes include hallucinations in severe cases. So not making excuses for him, but just throwing those out there. Yeah. Well, speaking of being delusional, he claimed that the bones found under the house were just a Halloween prank. He said that Jason and his friends stole three sets of bones from a nearby cemetery so they could scare some of the other kids in the neighborhood. As if they couldn't tell the difference between spirit Halloween decorations and (laughs) real bones. I wish everyone listening could see how hard I just rolled my eyes. Philip said they dressed one skeleton up in clothes and hung it over the balcony of the house on Halloween and that they played cricket in the backyard with the other skulls. Oh, he's really scary. Well, Philip doesn't sound like the kind of guy who would even bother decorating for holidays. But I wanted to ask David if he'd ever noticed Halloween decorations outside their house just to see if there was even a morsel of truth to this claim. Does that sound even yeah, at all possible fabrication that is that is the raving of a madman because there were only really three cemeteries in uniontown and they were all well kept mm. nobody's digging up skulls and no nobody's now if philip lucy said that that was desperation because they he knew they had him i also asked david if at the time of the trial he believed that philip had killed alan Here's what he said. It was easy to jump to that conclusion. It was easy. You know, I mean, when I first became aware of it, you know, I had no doubt it would. At that point, it was like, well, old man Lucy killed frog eyes. I think this was the general consensus throughout Uniontown, give or take a few people. In March of 1999, Philip's bond was lowered to $10,000 and a friend bailed him out so he could prepare for his upcoming trial. Shocked he had friends. <laughs> yeah. After he moved in with that friend who lived in the neighborhood known as The Village, some Uniontown residents started circulating a petition to have him removed. One woman who spoke with reporters said that people around here are scared to death of him and we just don't feel it's safe for our children to have him in our neighborhood. Yeah, I don't blame them. When the trial finally started on May 11th, 1999, Jason Lucy had still not been located. Where was he? Well, like I said, he was missing in action. So the prosecution had to use the transcript of his testimony from the June 1994 preliminary hearing. They also called Alan's biological mother, Ardella Leisure, as a witness. I was wondering how she was. She told reporters that she wasn't notified when Alan went missing and that she was only contacted after his remains were found in 1994. Wow. She also provided a blood sample, which was tested and found to be a DNA match with the bones found beneath the porch. The defense tried to discredit this, though, because the science around DNA testing was still relatively new at the time. But the prosecution had a strong case against Philip. They called Kelly Kirby as another witness. 
He testified that prior to closing on the home, Philip had, quote, discouraged him from going under the front of the house. What? Philip's attorney tried to discredit this testimony by denying he'd ever discouraged anyone from going under the house and pointing out that it would have been, quote, a little crazy to sell a house he knew a body was buried under. You think? But you know what? Look how much abuse and fraud he had gotten away with over the years. No wonder he was brazen and thought that he would never get caught. Meanwhile, the prosecution said that the house had been enclosed by a fence and protected by mean dogs in the yard, so no one but a member of the household could have had access to enter the crawl space where Alan's bones were buried. Philip actually didn't end up testifying. He had suffered a stroke while in jail and couldn't speak clearly as a result. He told reporters, I sound like a halfwit and the jury might think I'm capable of doing something like that. Hmm. On May 13th, 1999, after deliberating for less than two hours, the jury found Philip guilty. He was charged with murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Okay. I mean, I was worried that it wouldn't have that ending. Not that it's a happy one or that there could be such thing as justice under these awful circumstances, but it is a crumb of peace that he didn't just get released. Well, he immediately moved for an appeal. And in October of 2000, the verdict was overturned on a technicality. I'm on a roller coaster. I mean, what other, who else could you blame this on though? (laughs) So they started the trial process all over again. Philip was released on $15,000 bail and the prosecution was given 90 days to track down Jason. This time they found him. Okay, good. He was located in Pensacola, Florida in May of 2001. He told authorities that he wasn't hiding and that he thought the case was resolved. So he had moved away and was getting on with his life. He was 29 now, by the way. Do you think he was telling the truth that he wasn't hiding during the original trial? I don't know, but they actually had him arrested and released on $5,000 bail to make sure he testified this time, which he did. Mm. The second trial began on November 26, 2001. During Jason's testimony, he said he heard his father shout and curse at Alan and that the incident in the kitchen happened very quickly. He said, Alan just crumpled to the floor. His eyes were half open. As I look back on it now, I believe he was dead. And when the DA asked him to identify the man responsible for Alan's death, Jason pointed to Philip and said, that's my father, the man who killed my brother. According to Alvin Ben, the reporter, Philip was glaring at Jason throughout his testimony. Ben wrote in his book, if looks could kill, Jason Lucy would have crumbled on the witness stand. Mm. Philip testified this time too. While on the stand, he maintained his innocence and insisted that the bones weren't Alan's, saying again that they were a Halloween prank. You've got to be kidding me. He has Halloween working overtime here. Yeah. It took the jury less than an hour to deliberate, but this time they found Philip guilty of manslaughter, which should have come with a lesser sentence than the previous murder conviction, but the judge gave him the same sentence of 25 years in prison anyway. After the verdict was read, Ardella Leisure took the stand to make a final statement. She said to Philip, you killed my son and he's over there in two boxes. I hope you die in prison, which is exactly what happened. The following morning, Philip was found hanging in his jail cell, having apparently died by suicide. One day after the guilty charge. Mm -hmm. And then he's done suffering, presumably, unless you believe in hell. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Jason was not sad to hear about his father's death and said it was just a trick to make people feel guilty. He told the Selma Times Journal, I'm glad it's over and I can go on with my life. He can't hurt anyone again. Mm. The DA said something that I thought summed up the story perfectly. He said, This was a real American Gothic murder case. You hear of people dreaming up stuff like this and putting it in novels. This was the real thing. Which makes it so much more upsetting. Yeah. But with the case closed once and for all, Alan's remains could finally be given a proper burial. 
in the weeks that followed, the DA's office set up an account where people could make donations to his funeral service. Susan Keith, who worked at the DA's office and assisted crime victims, spoke with reporters about the response they'd gotten after asking for donations. She said, One envelope had four $1 bills in it. You just knew that family needed it, but felt it was more important to send to us to help Barry Allen. Mm. I mean, I just feel like there's a lot of kindness in that gesture, but it still makes me sad. Yeah, I'm not crying. (laughs) Susan Keith told the Selma Times Journal, many of the donations that came in were from people who followed the story, had known the family, or just plain cared about the little boy who lived and died in hell. They eventually raised $1,000. Philip White, who owned a funeral home on North Street, just a few doors down from the Hardy Coleman Lucy House, donated more than $3,000 to cover the remaining costs of the burial service. Mm. Allen was buried in Rosemont Cemetery in Uniontown on January 31st, 2002. The service was open to the public and about 40 people attended, including the district attorney who gave a brief eulogy. Allen's remains were wrapped in a clean white sheet and placed inside a pastel blue coffin. On the white sheet, there was a small gold angel pin. It belonged to Ardella, his birth mom. She'd started collecting angel pins since learning of Allen's murder and wore them throughout the trial. A small gold one was her favorite. It's for my boy, she said. He was my angel. I cannot pain. I'm just speechless. I was sobbing the entire time I was reading about Alan's funeral. I bet. But in complete contrast, no one wanted Philip's remains. According to Susan Keith at the DA's office, no one claimed the ashes. Yeah, I could make a lot of comments right now that would be unsavory, but I'll just say that I understand why people did not want to deal with that. Okay, so what happened with Jason? He moved on with his life. And Kelly Kirby, did he sell the house? Yeah, so he was brought back to testify again in the second trial. At the time, he was living in Seattle, Washington, and he told reporters that the house was under a lease purchase agreement with a couple who had moved in. He also said that he thought about finding Alan's remains a lot. I'm sure. Do we know anything about the couple? We don't, but to give you a sense of what state the house might have been in at the time, here's one last clip from my call with David. You know, you could squat about every third house in Uniontown. Yeah. And because your next door neighbors, if you had any, were probably in their 80s or 90s, you weren't going to get any trouble out of them. Right. You know, you could just pretty much, you know, force a door open and walk in and live there. Hmm. And this is still the case today. Nearly half of the homes and businesses in Uniontown appear to be boarded up and abandoned, including the Hardy Coleman Lucy House, which is probably in the worst shape it's ever been in. The white paint on the exterior of the house is chipped and rotting. One of the ionic columns is missing and another is falling into a window on the second floor. The front lawn is completely overgrown, so the house almost looks like it's sinking into the weeds and trees. That's so scary. Like it's sitting on quicksand being swallowed by the earth. Yeah, it's almost straight out of a horror movie. But thanks to a few brave YouTube creators, we finally got a look at the inside of the house, which is just as run down as the outside. When you first walk in, there's a large entry hall with doors leading to rooms on the left and right, and there's a large staircase on the left side of the hall leading to the second floor. You can see that the floors are dark hardwood, but there's a visible layer of dirt and grime covering them. The walls are a dark cream color with a pretty tragic booger green color on the trim. And throughout the house, there are large patches of spackle on the walls and plaster buckets kind of strewn about. So it looks like someone left mid-renovation. 
On the first floor, there are four common rooms, two on either side of the entry hall. Each of these rooms has a brick fireplace with a mantle painted that ugly green color. They loved that color. Yeah. Two of the rooms have built-in bookcases painted to match, and there are still some books left on the shelves. The kitchen cabinets are painted a yellowy color, and the countertops are dark green marble, although they don't look like real marble to me. Maybe they're laminate. Then again, it's hard to tell because the place is covered in dirt and dust. The bathroom on this floor has a stained glass window above the toilet, but it's boarded up, so at first glance, I thought it was a painted mural. Hmm. Boarded up. All over. Upstairs, there are four bedrooms, two of which have fireplaces in them, and several bathrooms. This floor is in really bad shape. There's a lot of debris on the floor, there are holes in the ceiling, probably from water damage. Some of the bedroom walls are either partly or entirely missing plaster, so it's just exposed wooden slats. And then the third floor appears to be unfinished, so I'm not sure if it was always that way or whether it was the only floor being gut renovated. Sounds like it's time to put a match to the place again. (laughs) There's also a hole in the foundation beneath the front porch, so you can see into the crawl space. Ugh! But why don't they board up that? Who knows? (laughs) YouTuber Jeremy Explores has some footage looking around down there, and you can see a pile of bricks right under this opening in the foundation. Some of them were probably part of the wall where this gaping hole is now, but Jeremy says that a few could be the original bricks found buried with Alan's remains. That might be a stretch. It's possible that the original bricks were taken in as evidence. You kind of sensationalized, but... But you can see that a handful of the ones in the pile are covered in this blue, moldy substance, so maybe they were buried? Gross. Someone commented on the video saying, I'm an empath. When you walked into the blue room with a fireplace, I felt a thick pain on the left side of my throat in one single place and pain in my right foot bottom. No idea why. That stood out to me since Jason testified that he saw Philip hit Allen on the left side of his face. I have a hard time buying that someone can like through the screen feel that, but maybe. Well, I don't know if I think the house is haunted, but the house itself is sort of a ghost. It doesn't even have an address anymore. Creepy. There does appear to be an owner, though, someone by the name of Donald Lawrence. He seems to also own Conida Manor, which, as a reminder, is about a block away from the Hardy Coleman Lucy house and was originally built by Robert Coleman's brother. It's also boarded up and abandoned. Do we know anything about the owner or what his plans are for these two properties? We know almost nothing about him, except that he may have previously worked as a contractor for the U.S. Air Force at their base in Elmendorf, Alaska. That was the mailing address that he listed on the property record for the Hardy Coleman Lucy House. Hmm. But there's a Georgia mailing address on the property record for Conida Manor. And I've hit nothing but dead ends trying to track him down. So we don't know if he has personal roots in Uniontown. We don't know for sure, but my guess is that he doesn't. Keep in mind, a lot of families were looking to leave Uniontown. And those who remain have been dealing with the effects of environmental racism for more than a decade. Wow. Okay. I feel like we should talk about that. Oh, yes, we should. One of the major issues is the Arrowhead Landfill, which opened on the outskirts of Uniontown in 2007. As recently as last year, the landfill was licensed to receive up to 15,000 tons of trash from any of 33 states on a daily basis. That's so hard to fathom. That is so much trash. It's worse than just the daily waste intake, though. In 2008, there was a massive coal ash spill at the Kingston Fossil Plant in Tennessee. And as part of the cleanup afterwards, 4 million cubic yards of coal ash were sent to Arrowhead Landfill to be disposed of in 2010. Coal ash is the waste left behind after coal is burned. It typically contains heavy metals like arsenic, lead, mercury, cadmium. The list goes on. 
And these metals are all either known carcinogens or have been proven to cause other serious health issues if ingested, like asthma, lung disease, kidney disease, even birth defects. Mm -hmm. When it was spilled in Tennessee in an area with a majority white population, the coal ash was classified as hazardous waste. But once it was moved to Uniontown, a majority black community where more than 50 percent of the population is living below the poverty line, the coal ash was reclassified as non-hazardous under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. That is really disturbing. It is, especially considering that since the coal ash was moved to the landfill, it's been reported that Uniontown's drinking water supply has become contaminated with arsenic at a level that regular water filters can't clean. Ugh. So Uniontown residents rely on bottled water for their drinking supply, but the town doesn't have a recycling system. And that's so expensive. Like these people are already living below the poverty line and each bottle of water costs $3.99 or whatever it does these days. That's crazy. Yes. And it also is affecting the entire globe. Yeah. What's worse, in 2013, 35 Uniontown residents, many of whom lived within a mile of the landfill, filed a complaint with the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Civil Rights. The complaint outlined a number of problems caused by the landfill, including frequent odors, irritation of the eyes, nose and throat, Mm. and increased noise from all the heavy machinery, which interfered with the residents' quality of sleep. Wow. Health and safety concerns aside, the landfill also encroaches on the New Hope Church Cemetery, where the remains of many formerly enslaved people and sharecroppers were buried. Ugh. Landfill doesn't own the cemetery property, but they've still made physical changes to it that threaten the burial plots. The injustices are really piling up here. Definitely. But the landfill isn't the only problem. Uniontown's sewage system is incredibly old and very broken. The wastewater from homes and businesses in town is piped to these treatment lagoons and spray fields Hmm. where it should be absorbed into the soil and go through a natural cleansing process. But the sewer pipes are covered in holes. So rainwater floods in and causes the treatment lagoons to overflow into a nearby creek, which sends untreated or partially treated wastewater into the drinking supply, further contaminating it. Ugh. That's so gross. So there's wastewater in the sink. Like if I filled up a glass of water in the Hardy Coleman house, there would be shit in it. It's contaminated. Don't drink the water, essentially. Which they don't. Oh my God. This has actually led Alabama state agencies to sue the city of Uniontown for violations of the Clean Water Act and the Alabama Water Pollution Control Act. As you're going through all of this, I'm also just thinking about how the wastewater issue in Uniontown is just one example or a microcosm of this huge pattern that we see across the country and probably the world with issues of environmental injustice. And it's not just isolated to rural communities in the South either. I mean, being from San Francisco, the most obvious example would be Bayview Hunters Point. And then there was Flint, Michigan, which was making headlines in recent years. Ugh. And there's just so many other issues too, like food deserts, nuclear dumping sites, other things, other examples of this. And also just clean air and smoke inhalation with wildfires. I just, my brain is kind of spiraling right now, if you can tell. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to the fact that Our environmental laws need a lot of improvement. And currently they're Mm. failing to protect not just the civil rights, but literally basic human rights of marginalized communities across the country. Right. You know, I mean, basic rights to clean water, food, air. These are not complicated luxuries. No. And even the way that aid is offered to these communities, it's still prioritizing industries over the residents. We've seen this in Uniontown. Sadly, not surprised. In 2018, the U.S. Department of Agriculture approved a $23 million emergency grant to help address the wastewater issue, but the grant required that an independent water and sewer board oversee the project. Their current plan is to send the wastewater about 20 miles away to a treatment plant in Demopolis. But this plan benefits the businesses in town more than the residents, whose water bills will be much higher if the plan moves forward. Mm. 
And if they were to continue fighting this plan, the city of Uniontown would be faced with a $1,000 a day fine for contempt of court, which they can't afford. Oh, my God. One more thing. Two of the businesses that will benefit from the wastewater plan are a cheese plant and a catfish processing plant that pose a completely separate issue. They smell really bad. Yeah. Residents say that sometimes the smell is so intense you can't even work outside in your garden or even sit on your porch. Also, when David was talking about every three house being one that you could squat in, it now makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's also just an element of claustrophobia to that of being trapped inside your house because it smells so bad outside or simply because of all that air pollution and the noise pollution. And it's also, I'm picturing being inside the Hardy Coleman house, which is not really a place that I necessarily would want to hang out either. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the boogeyman and threats that are real versus those that are imagined, but pollution is literally horrifying. Mm -hmm. But we have to talk about it. And it's actually a big reason why I chose to cover this house, because ultimately this is a story about justice. Justice for the people of Uniontown who continue to fight for the health and safety of their community and Mm -hmm. who deserve to have their voices heard. And justice for Alan, who deserved more from the adults who were put in charge of his care. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, that is all I have for you today. We'll be back next week with another new episode. And I will be taking us to San Antonio, Texas. There will be a bit of a tone shift. I'm really excited for this one because there are so many fun ghost stories, which is where we shine. I would say. Me too. Yeah. So make sure that you're subscribed to Dark House on whatever platform you're listening on. Leave us a review, preferably a positive one, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 